Fascism is a form of politics that has certain aspects that you want to look for. You want to look for a cult of male leadership. You want to look for an effort to attack the media. You want to look for a sense of hierarchy, hypernationalism, of course. You want to look for a sense of victimization. You want to look for a cult of violence. Inside Without Now, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with RefuseFascism.org. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. Last week, Refuse Fascism organized demonstrations in 25 cities demanding Trump-Pence out now. This was a beautiful thing, and we must not underestimate the significance of what we are in the process of building. The people of the world need us to go forward together to drive out the Trump-Pence fascist regime and stop its program. Trump is daily escalating his racism and lies, cheering vigilante bloodshed and refusing in advance to be bound by an electoral loss. Tens of thousands pack his rallies, violently caravan through the streets, and prepare to intimidate Black, Latino, and Native American voters on November 3rd. Just last night in Nevada, Trump whipped up a crowd of thousands of maskless followers with claims that the election election is going to be rigged. Meanwhile, Trump's notorious advisor, Roger Stone, recently released from prison, was quoted as saying that Trump ought to declare martial law if the election doesn't go his way. It is very important that more and more people are talking about this scenario and what to do if and when it comes to this. But it is even more crucial that we act now in the streets to forge the force that must come together to end this nightmare. It may very well be too late if we wait until November 4th. On September 21st, in stark contrast to this regime's parade of death, lies, and callous disregard for humanity, we will mark the grim milestone of 200,000 COVID-19-related deaths by demanding Trump-Pence out now. In cities and towns across the country, march against death, lies, and fascism, and for humanity. Demand Trump-Pence out now. As Bob Woodward recently revealed, Trump deliberately deceived the world about the danger of the virus at a time when his action could have saved thousands of lives. He said, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down because I don't want to create a panic. This is yet another calculated lie from a man whose regime came to power by fomenting racist fear and panic. As COVID-19 ravaged vulnerable communities, disproportionately killing Black, Latinx, and Native people, as well as the elderly and the sick, the regime actively contradicted the science 
to sabotage any real efforts to save lives or bring this pandemic under control. Many who died were the same people, are the same people, that this fascist regime has been demonizing and vilifying from the beginning. People that they would just as soon do away with. This is a road to genocide. Will history tell that we, in our millions, went along with this? Or will it tell that we rose, as many acting together, to stop a great horror? Thousands more in this country and millions around the world will needlessly die unless we use our power of sustained, nonviolent mass protests and demand that a regime that wantonly spreads disease and causes math death must go. The science-hating response to COVID-19, revealing a sociopathic disregard for human life, is but one leading edge of an entire program of hatred, bigotry, and cruelty. More and more the different strands of this fascist program the white supremacy, the misogyny, the xenophobia, wrapped in the flag of the Bible taken literally, is cohering and consolidating into a different form of rule in this country, relying on violence, terror, and brutality. As Trump and his goons mobilize every day to intimidate voters and undermine a fair election in November, waiting to vote is not enough to stop this. We must rise now, just as millions did in June and July for Black Lives, showing the world that we are uniting and preparing to struggle with all we've got to stop this fascist regime and bring this fascist genocidal program to a halt. This must be our time, not Trump's, not his fascist goons. Our actions now must lead into an October of people from many different backgrounds and struggles for justice, coming together week after week, day after day, in continuing protests to oust this fascist regime and stop a further catastrophe for humanity. We've seen the power of millions acting with sustained determination. We call on you to join in bringing this forward on an even greater scale to stop more mass death at the hands of a fascist regime. But before September 21st, we are also calling on people to take to the streets this Wednesday, September 16, to indict Trump for inciting and defending murders by fascist mobs and commemorate the fallen, to drive out the Trump-Pence regime. In Philly, we will be protesting Trump's appearance at a town hall on Tuesday, September 15th, and I hope to see everyone in the area there. Trump's people, with direct encouragement from Trump, have attacked protesters, run them down with cars, and murdered them in the streets. They aim to terrorize us into silence. On September 16th, this Wednesday, we must declare, for every one you kill or maim, a hundred will rise in their place, fiercely determined not to stop until this fascist Trump-Pence regime is out and its program halted. Learn more about these protests, find one near you, or organize one. Visit refusefascism.org. Stay tuned to refusefascism.org, follow at refusefascism on social media, and subscribe to this podcast for updates. Today, 
We're talking with Josh Shanes, Associate Professor of Jewish Studies and Director of the Center of Israel Studies at the College of Charleston. In late August, Josh wrote an article in Slate.com titled, This Was the Week American Fascism Reached a Tipping Point, which we're linking in the show notes. He has published widely on modern Jewish politics, culture, and religion, anti-Semitism, and nationalism, as well as American and Israeli politics in both academic and popular outlets, including Slate, Washington Post, Haaretz, and Sukun. He'll have a new article out this week on the popularity of Trump among Orthodox Jews in the online tablet magazine. Here's my thinking on fascism. I, and I'll just say at the outset, I, I was trained at the University of Wisconsin. I went there because of their fame program in German history. I had expected to become a Holocaust historian. And I studied this for a few years, and then I later switched to an earlier period in Jewish history. I write mostly now on the, the first half of the 20th century in Jewish, especially Jewish politics and religion. Fascism is a form of politics that has certain aspects that you want to look for. Jason Stanley does a good job with some of these in his books. So for example, you want to look for a cult of male leadership. You want to look for an effort to attack the media. The Nazis had a term for this called Lugenpresse, which means lying press. The media was um, a threat to them before they could shut it down because it was exposing their lies. And so what they did was they wanted to sort of, I don't know if gaslight is the right term, but they wanted to sort of delegitimize the media by saturating so much lies and so much ideas about what is truth anyway, that the media could no longer do its job. Obviously, the term today, fake news, has done that job for us. Fake news is really a, not just a close coincidental translation of lying press, but actually doing the same work as lying press. You want to look for a sense of hierarchy, a sense of natural hierarchy among humans. Some are be naturally better than others. Hypernationalism, of course. You want to look for a sense of victimization, that we are being victimized. We are the victim. In that case, it was the, the Aryan Germans. In this case, it's men or white men or white America or Western civilization. You want to look for a cult of violence, not just violence as an acceptable tool, but actually almost a celebration of violence. What Robert Paxton called the beauty of violence. Uh, celebrating violence as a wonderful thing, as a wonderful act, that's part of fascism as well. You want to look for what the Germans call Gleichschaltung. Gleichschaltung is the German word for when the Nazi party tried to Nazify the various institutions of the state to turn them from ordinary bureaucrats doing their jobs to loyalists to Hitler and to the party. That means the judiciary, that means the justice department, that means the, everything from the judges to the police chiefs and so on. I could go on, but you get the idea. We're seeing these things and the, the tipping point. Now, keep in mind, your listeners should know, uh, authors don't get to choose their headlines. So if you ever complain about an article, the article was great, but the headline was terrible. Just know that we never, ever, even the most famous author in the world does not get to choose their own headlines. What headline would you have chosen? If uh, well, you know, Slate, I, the, the problem with tipping point is, I, I don't like the language of tipping point, I'll be honest. I know it gets clicks and I appreciate that and I want people to read. But the problem of tipping point is twofold. First of all, it suggests it's too late and it's never too mm. late. Um, and second of all, it sort of, it, it sort of suggests um, that, before, you know, that, that there's a certain moment where it's all over. And that's never really quite true with fascism and fascist politics. It's continuously entrenching itself. And in our case, it's continuously getting worse. Uh, the thing that really got my attention last week, or I guess two weeks ago now, 
was the rise of militias. You know, that was Weimar Germany. If any of your listeners have watched the show Babylon Berlin, it's a great show. So good. So, uh, but one of the things that show gets so well is the sort of chaos on the streets of Berlin just before the Nazi revolution. Militias were running rampant without being suppressed by the state in any way. In fact, the state tended to use those, especially the right-wing militias. They wouldn't stop them. They would sort of celebrate them. And that's what really caught my attention with Kyle Rittenhouse. The way that you have these white vigilantes, he was 17, armed and not being arrested, but being given water bottles and said, thank you so much for coming. He commits murder or homicide anyway. I guess it has to be determined in the court of law if it was murder, but certainly homicide uh, looks like murder. And he's not arrested right away. He's just, he just goes home. Um, that is what evoked for me the collapse of Weimar Germany, the collapse of democratic societies in the past. And this shocked even me, I have to admit, and I'm pretty damn jaded, but it shocked even me that the right-wing blogosphere, and Trump took a couple days, he wanted to make sure his people were behind it first, are celebrating him as a hero. Donald Trump Jr. said, we all get into trouble when we're kids. Keep in mind, this is the same family, Donald Trump Sr., who called to lynch the Central Park Five, who were teenagers, 14, 15, and 16, called to lynch them before they were found guilty in a court of law, called to lynch them again when they were exonerated, DNA evidence. That's really what fascism is about. It's about reasserting the natural hierarchy and claiming that we you know, are the real victims here. The evidence is pretty clear that there is systemic discrimination against African-Americans in all sorts of ways. You can begin by the fact that the average African-American household has less than a tenth of the wealth of the average white household. Uh, but there's a lot of evidence, other things, uh, incarceration rates, the kind of crimes that get charged and prosecuted, all sorts of things. This, this, is, this is self-evident. But really, they feel that it's whites who are the victims here. Trump is the victim, right? Everyone's being unfair to him. And people feel this and they are attracted to it. People should be thinking about fascism as a form of politics, not we're free and we're not. And I think also keep in mind, you know, we study history, we sort of have the sense that it was 1932, then it was 1944. People in Germany just live their lives. They have jobs and kids and they have to get food on the table and things just sort of happen slowly. Day-to-day -day life continued for a lot of people. And we have to realize that too. Things took more time than we realized. It didn't happen overnight. It just didn't happen overnight. It shocks the conscious it should. How it didn't happen overnight, and yet it happened in a very short window of time. Mm -hmm. That all of society and the way that, that people lived their lives, even though it didn't happen right away, it happened in the course of years not centuries. That's, that's in the short true. window, people went from human beings to not. <laughs> it's never too late in terms of the moral obligation that we have to stop it. But I think that it is more than advantageous, it is imperative to act while that, that window where you can change, where that's you right. still have the right to protest, it is so urgent. When, when you were talking and when I was reading your piece about Kenosha and Portland. And then you were just speaking now about this false victimhood. I don't expect people to regularly watch Trump rallies, but last night in Nevada, it just was seething with this spirit of retribution, this violence and vengeance without a trial, just go out, brute force, terror, and we're saving ourselves ahead of any attack. Well, all, that's right. All oppression in history goes is always framed as self-defense, right? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also a scholar of Judaism, and I know my Bible fairly well. Uh, and there's a famous, I, I often quote it. There's a, if those of your listeners who know their Bible should go back to the Book of Exodus in the very beginning, when Pharaoh says, 
let's get wise with these Jews. They're going to they're gonna threaten us if we don't enslave them and oppress them. So we should oppress them first. Um, that was true of, you know, all throughout history, uh, that's been the case. So all throughout history, uh, that's been the case from, you know, from that primordial text. Uh, I don't know who wrote it, but certainly the divine or human authors of that text had a sense of oppression coming, being justified as self-defense. That, that seems... You know, uh, Jim Crow, slavery, all these things were, de were uh, defended as self-defense. Nazism was defended as self-defense against Marxism, against Judeo-Marxism, uh, Bolshevism, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's one thing I, I would say. Uh, a second thing I would say is you can see already five years ago the dehumanization. When, and I often tell my students, when you start seeing human beings described as animals, um, that's when you really need to get word. And we, of course, we saw that with Trump from the very beginning. The, de the dehumanization of immigrants as snakes, as scum, as vermin. And, you know, that was a big part of Nazi propaganda against the Jews. And the reason for that is quite simple. Um, it's because now it's self-defense. You know, this morning I washed my, just before we talked, I, I washed my hands with soap. I committed genocide. I'm, I'm sure I killed billions of germs. I didn't think twice about it because I need to stay hygienic and keep myself safe from, from disease. So I washed my hands. If you view Jews or in this case, immigrants or Latinos or Muslims or African-Americans, whoever it is, as animals, as, as a, as a non-human non threat, you can do anything you want to them. And it's not because you hate them. You're just keeping yourself safe. Mm -hmm. That's very concerning. A lot of Nazi propaganda was focused on, on presenting Jews and others as animals for that reason, because you don't have to hate them to, to, to support actions against them if they're a threat to your very uh, hygiene. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 I teach fascism and I teach Jewish history and the Holocaust pretty regularly. And I have lectures that I wrote. I mean, I'm not that old, but I have been doing this now. My, I, I, in my first started teaching about 20 years ago now uh, out of grad school. And I have lectures I wrote a long time ago and texts that were written explaining fascism written a long time ago. I mean, some of them go back to the 60s and certainly many are in the 90s when I went to grad school. And I just tell my students, let's talk about what makes fascism. Right? What are we looking for with fascism? And they come up with the list from the readings they had that were written decades ago in many cases. We're looking for a cult of leadership. We're looking for uh, a movement that celebrates violence. We're looking for a movement that delegitimizes the media, that attacks labor unions. That's very important, by the way. Labor unions are a source of threat to, to a, a, an ascendant, ascendant uh, fascist movement. Uh, we're looking for a movement that is based, uh, that opposes uh, deviant sexuality. That's a big part of fascism as well. You know, the very fa that famous scene that you've probably seen of Nazis burning books in 33 or 34, whenever it was, it was actually the, one of the pioneering institutes of sexual, uh, of sex research, uh, sex and gender research. It was one of the earliest institutes that did that. That was the library they were burning because that was considered a, a dangerous deviancy. Um, so when we see the movement Trumpism attacking uh, transgenders, attacking gay rights, um, that's part of it as well. Uh, we're looking for a patriarchal system that uh, supports traditional gender roles. As a traditional, they're not really traditional. They're, they're bourgeois, 19th bourgeois, but gender roles in which men, men are in charge and women are domesticated, kept domesticated. We're looking for a movement. And again, this is the list the students are brainstorming with me from the readings they have. And they go through all these things. And then we talk about Hitler. What made Hitler Hitler? Uh, and they talk about his ability to uh, open it. And he talked about his talent in attracting emotion fear and anger above all else, uh, big lies, repeating big lies as often as possible, never conceding, he said. Hitler wrote, never ever concede any mistake, ever. That's very important. 
Hitler was brilliant at his understanding of the use of new technologies. In those days, that meant above all airplanes and radio. Hitler was much more advanced uh, in understanding the use of radio and the use of the airplane to fly from rally to rally to rally in a way that others simply were not. The Nazis were the youngest party by far. The, the communists and the Nazis were two young parties in Germany, but the Nazis were younger, and they were certainly younger than all the other ones. Uh, the average age of, the, of a Nazi party member was in the low 30s when they came to power. So they understood these things in a way that other parties didn't. And we just go through this list. Um, and then finally, we read the story. There's a famous book called The, uh, the Nazi Seizure of Power, which was a micro study of a specific town uh, in Germany, a small town, a few thousands, 10, 20, 30,000 people, whatever it was, trying to understand how it became Nazified, how the people chose the Nazis. In the end, the author, William Sheridan Allen, again, he wrote this decades ago, included, he said, at the end of the day, there was a lot of things that made Nazis come, become powerful and popular, but at the end of the day, there was simply the failure of non-Nazis to realize that whatever Nazism promised, it was an de indecent thing. That no matter what they promised to provide, it was itself an evil and decent thing, and therefore they refused to stop it. And again, these are lectures I wrote years ago. I literally wrote my lecture notes years ago that Hitler promised to make Germany great again. That's part of the things that they promised. And I just, I walk away from the class. I say, I'm not going to tell you what to think about today. Decide for yourself. But this is the lecture I wrote 10 years ago. These are the readings that were written years ago. You have brainstormed with me this list of, of items. Perhaps you want to uh, think about that and, and what it means, right? And again, it doesn't mean that Trump is Hitler. Uh, it really doesn't. It means that fascism can is a spectrum of politics and it is ascendant right now. America. There's just no question in my mind. And I'm not the only one saying that. Jason Stanley, I mentioned already, he's been saying that. Christopher Browning, who is probably the most important Holocaust historian of the last 15 years, the last 30 for sure, uh, he wrote an article, more than one article, uh, in Foreign Affairs and elsewhere talking about this. My teacher, Rudy Koshar, has written about uh, Richard Bodak, Richard uh, Steigman, uh, Helene Sinreich at, uh, at, uh, in, in Tennessee. Many scholars of, of fascism and the Holocaust have been writing that we are in a moment of fascist ascendancy and we have to do what we can. Is it a tipping point? There's never a tipping point. I mean, it's getting harder and harder to fight. The Justice Department has been corrupted. We've seen that. It is no longer, it is now uh, uh, the personal attorney of Donald Trump, and it's doing everything it can to corrupt the government, our elections, and the rule of law to support Trumpism. We've seen that openly now. That's, that's a lost cause. Uh, the court system has been severely weakened. It's not gone yet. It will be uh, in three or two, three more years if this doesn't stop, but the court system is, is severely weakened. Um, militias are running rampant and nothing is stopping them. I could go on. Things are, are precarious. It's not too late, but it's getting closer and closer to where there's less and less we can do. I, I think that that's an important point. You know, you were talking about those who are sounding the alarm and making the connections and bringing people's attention. We, we were grateful to have Jason Stanley on this podcast. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. That's wonderful. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, he's, he's, he's brilliant. He's, and he's, done, and he's, brilliant. he's done really important work, um, in terms of, of sounding this alarm. Yes. And one thing I wanted to ask you is that in the slate piece you wrote amid the flurry of steps towards authoritarianism, confidence that institutional stability and cultural norms will protect us from the fate of other states that fell to fascistic movements have taken a profound hit. With Trump's continued attempts to preemptively delegitimize or even outright sabotage the upcoming election, democratic stability is at risk. And yet there continues to be a lot of fascism denialism. Why do you think this denialism still prevails? And how do you think people who do see this, how, how do we break through? 
So it's uh, two questions. So regarding the media, uh, I, and again, this is just my own perspective and I, I could be wrong, but it seems to me the media is so obsessed with being both sides, so obsessed with being afraid to appear biased um, that they simply refuse for the most part to call things out for what they are. Even just using the word lie, um, it took them a long time to start saying Trump lied or Trump said, you know, lying gives a sense of intention that they don't like that, you know, Trump said, or, you know, instead of saying something is racist, they'll say it's racially charged and, and all this kind of language. And I, I think that's a mistake. I think I, I appreciate where they're coming from, but I really think that when the scientists, I think it's a mistake to say climate change is a debate and, and the media has gotten over that. They no longer talk about climate change as, as a debate. They now talk about climate change as a fact, just like uh, flat earth society is no longer something that, that the media will say, hey, there's those who think the earth might be flat. We should consider that. They also, I think for the most part, no longer consider denial of climate change to be something that should be considered. Uh, I, it seems to me that if the scientists uh, are pointing to all this evidence about fascist ascendancy in America, they should be willing to say, the evidence is overwhelming. We have to talk about this, but they're, they've been afraid to do so for a variety of reasons. And I think, you know, they played a huge role in what happened in 2016. There's no question about it. When you look at the way they covered Hillary Clinton, versus the way they covered Trump, it was outrageous. Certainly misogyny plays a huge role in that, but not just misogyny. I think it's more than that. I really do. Certainly misogyny was part of it, but you see it still now. Um, so that, that's one part of the answer. In terms of convincing people of the reality, I, I don't know the best political strategy. I, I know that those who are inclined to be on the left, whatever that means in any sensible way, need to understand the fascist threat. Anyone who was uh, someone to the left of the, of the nominee, a, Biden, a Bernie supporter or something like that, they need to understand that this is really fascism and that we may not come through if Trump doesn't leave office at the end of this term. And there will be dire, I mean, eventually things will turn around, I suppose. I mean, Nazism didn't last forever, but the cost was pretty terrible by the time we got to 1945. So the cost will likewise be terrible. They need to understand that. Now, in terms of, when, of, of stopping him, I, I guess the political scientists and theorists and pundits are saying there needs to be a massive wave of votes that no corruption can deny. And it's true. An equal election, you know, winning by one vote will not do it. You have to win by much more, not just because of the electoral college, because of massive fraud and suppression of the vote. Uh, Florida just today or yesterday um, upheld the, the poll tax effectively of the, of the ex-felons that they have to pay off all their fines before they can vote. So it's not just the electoral college, it's also suppression. I think one thing that can confuse or, or muddle the waters is some people, and it's not all poor intentions or anything like that, but people can say, um, especially people from oppressed um, communities can say, my people have always suffered. My, my ancestors came on slave ships. America has never been good to me. And so I was wondering from your perspective and your scholarly work, what do you say to those on the left who have a right point that things have already been bad, that we're not just talking about things being really bad, we're talking about, you know, something different. The difference between like, oppression and, and genocide is, I guess, how I've tried to explain. Well, I mean, what I would say is, uh, look, they're right. America has been not a liberal nationalism, but an ethnic nationalism combined. We were a country born, not just born in sin, but born on the backs of the genocide of Native American enslavement of African Amer of Africans. 
uh, there's no question about that. And that, that, that isn't something that just stopped in 1865, right? That's continued to this very day. There's no question about that. What I would say is that there has been a pushback over time to make it better. And that pushback has succeeded sometimes and fallen back sometimes. The 60s and 70s were in, 60s for sure, were in some ways a good time. Uh, not a good time. They were, I mean, they were awful in most ways, but it was, it, it was progress was happening. There was progress for a brief window. For a brief window, the Supreme Court, which has normally been a very reactionary body, was making things better. For a brief window, there was some sort of consensus that certain things had to change. And then it stopped. And I think for the last 25 years, uh, and actually Brian Rosenwald, who is one of the editors at Washington Post, he runs this Made by History group, wrote a great book about talk radio. Our talk radio, Rush Limbaugh and then all of his copycats basically made Trump. Uh, they radicalized the Republican base and therefore radicalized the Republican Party and basically made Trump. And I think he's right. And, and I think, by the way, that's part of why the Orthodox and evangelical world is the way it is, because they've been listening to talk radio for 30 years and been transformed by it. I think, I think Brian is spot on about that. By the way, the Made by History page of Washington Post is terrific that he's built there. It's basically historians saying, here's what I study really well for all these, my whole life, and here's how it applies today. And it's, a, it's a wonderful page. I myself have pu published with them before. It's a terrific page. So what I would say is you have to affirm what they're saying. Uh, America has been a terrible place in many, many ways. And this idea of the founding fathers being great, you know, with this asterisk of, oh, but by the way, except for this, is ridiculous and offensive. The idea of saying that now we're over racism is ridiculous. But what we're seeing with Trump is a real entrenchment that's going to destroy any hope of improvement and is going to, for a while, make things much, much worse. We already have concentration camps. We, we just do for, for immigrants. And just like the concentration camps of, of yesteryear, we're not allowed to see them, to visit them. The media is not allowed in because it's out of sight, out of mind. That's the idea. And they're going to get worse. When the courts are fully under Trump's control and the Justice Department is fully under Trump's control and the armed forces are fully under Trump's control, just wait and see. Trump celebrated yesterday, the day before, the, the, the killing of the guy who had killed the, uh, the Trump supporter. And I, I don't know the context of the original killing. Maybe he was guilty of, of a homicide that needs to be prosecuted, but he was killed extrajudiciously. And that was being celebrated while Kyle Rittenhouse is being celebrated for himself killing extrajudiciously. So we're, we're talking about a fascist reality here that will be unlike anything anyone alive today can imagine. That's all I, I, I can say. And, and it will be infinitely worse for minorities than it will be for those who are not minorities. Uh, they're going to come for Jews. Uh, I don't know if the state will come for Jews. I don't think so. But certainly vigilantes are going to come for Jews. We know that. QAnon is a deeply anti-Semitic philosophy. Uh, white nationalists are in general deeply anti-Semitic. So we know they're going to come for Jews eventually. But they're going to come first and foremost for other minorities, especially African-Americans and Muslims, Latinos. Uh, and the state will come for those groups, not just the vigilantes. So I, I don't think people really have a sense of the danger we're in. I would urge them to study history, to understand that America is not different. If anything, we're worse than most of the world in many ways. We are the origins of ideals of, uh, I mean, Nazism learned what it learned from us, from Jim Crow and our history here. We're not better than, any, than the rest of the world. We're just not. We have some things, I mean, do well. And we have things on which we can pin hope and build on. The idea that somehow we're magically different. You know, one of the things that, um, that, that I mentioned earlier, Christopher Browning, who's a, who's a great man, a great scholar, wrote many, many books on the Holocaust. Not Jewish, by the way. And his most famous book by far was called Ordinary Men. 
And it was a study of a Nazi, of one of the, what's called the Einsatzgruppen, and these mobile killing squads that were sent to, after the German army conquered land in Eastern Europe, these squads would come in from the summer of 41 until early 42 before the death camps were up and running. And they would just shoot mostly Jews, a few others, but mostly Jews, point blank range into digits. They killed over a million Jews this way in less than, what, seven or eight months. They shot over a million Jews, men, women, and children into ditches. And he studied them. What made them tick? Why did they do it? Basically, why did they follow the orders? And it wasn't because they were anti-Semitic, it turns out. He said, basically, they're human beings who are uh, wired to defer to authority. You know, like the famous study of, um, and I know it's a flawed study, but in the 60s, with, with the shocks, the shocking experiment, right? The, the Stanley Milgram experiment, when people gave shocks, even though they knew it was wrong. If, if you haven't studied that experiment, you should. I realize it was a flawed experiment, but still it showed some important results. And that's what he found with these uh, killers. You know, I asked my students in the class, you will read Ordinary Men and I'll say, how many of you? So it turns out back then, about 20% of the people said no. They just wouldn't do it. And nothing happened to them, by the way. They weren't like sent to Stalingrad or something. They just, they just went home, did other things for the, for the state. They went back home but only about 20%. And I said, how many of you would say no? And every hand goes up. And I said, this is not true. I, I don't know which one of you it is, but 80% of you are wired to say yes. You're saying yes right now in some way. Whatever you can do, you're saying yes right now. So I, I urge them to see how they're saying yes, whether you know, it, it's, it's not yet pulling the trigger, I hope, in most of their cases, but it's certainly in other ways. And if it comes to it, 80% will pull the trigger. That's why he said the, the book is called Ordinary Men, Not Ordinary Germans. There's nothing about the German character that makes them more prone to fascism. There's nothing more about the German character that makes them more prone to killing. We see today that Germany is a bastion of democracy in, in a world in which democracy is crumbling, despite the ascendancy of the AFD. I, I don't think any reliance on America being special and different uh, in a good way is, is, is warranted. Uh, quite the opposite. I think that American exceptionalism has done brave harm that cannot be be summarized in a nugget <laughs> in I, podcast I form. But I think that there's this dual American exceptionalism right now that's incredibly dangerous. The notion that it can't happen here right. because we are so good and we are so great and our democracy is so strong that it could never happen here. And the the also, you know, flip side of this except American exceptionalism regarding the power of mass protests and the power of the people in that, oh, well, we, we could never oust a tyrant here. They can only do that elsewhere. It's like this, this dual exceptionalism that I think um, people have to break with. I think, you know, when you were talking about that book, it reminded me of an article that one of the editors for Refuse Fascism, uh, Sarah Wark, wrote about the uh, drinks in Sobovar, how... Mm -hmm. It's not just what you accept, it's who you become. Mm -hmm. And that people did not start out with all these, I'm going to use the word evil, you don't need to, but all these evil ideas about people, mm -hmm. you know, where they could, you know, drink next to mass graves. You know, they didn't start like that, but that which you allow. It's, it's is, really too late. I mean, by 1940, by 1942, there was nothing the average German could do to stop the Holocaust. There really wasn't. Um, it was too late uh, at that point. Uh, and it seems to me, like I said at the very beginning of our conversation, you know, why do we study the Holocaust? It's a very popular subject at the academic level. It's, it's by, in most, um, there's a very uh, sort of a sad humor, but the, you know, the Hebrew word for Holocaust is Shoah. 
So they often say in academia, there is no business like the show of business. In terms of movies and popular culture, in terms of fundraising, and in terms of college classes, it's very popular. And I have to ask my students and listeners and whoever will read me, why do we do it? I mean, is it just a sick voyeurism? Are we doing it? We get off on it. And it's exciting. And we get to walk away from it. And it was sort of a thrilling, sad tale. Is it some kind of bizarre voyeurism? Or is it because we want to prevent it, its repetition in some way? And even if it's not exactly the same, anything approaching that or anything that might l logically become that. And if this doesn't qualify, I don't know what does. I honest to God don't know what does. Uh, if never again, if you, if you think never again, and again, there are some on the right who say never, so there are some Jews on the right who I argue with a lot. Never again means never again to us. And I don't care about the rest of the world, right? So I'm, I'm gonna commit genocide if I need to, to make sure that Jews are never killed again. And I, and I, I think, you know, uh, Mayor Kahana, the famous Jewish racist, actually published a book called Never Again. He helped popularize the phrase. So I get that some people think of it that way. I sure as hell don't. Uh, to me, never again means we study history so that when we see patterns repeating, we intervene before it's too late. We get motivated to intervene before it's too late. Um, that should have happened four years ago. It began to happen two years ago. I can you imagine where we'd be if the House hadn't flipped to the Democratic control in 2018? My God, it's hard to imagine. I hope it saves us now. And by the way, even if, if, if we are successful in resisting fascism for this moment, in a sense that uh, the election, despite all of the evidence uh, of, of suppression and all of the uh, effort by Trump and his party to undermine popular confidence in results, if we somehow get Trump out of the White House and, and, and Biden uh, and Harris come to office, um, if, even if that happens, culturally, we have to undergo some kind of uh, detoxification. You know, after World War II, Germany was forced to undergo a denazification, um, not so much at the level of, of, of uh, institutions. In other words, you couldn't just fire every Nazi from, from being a judge or a police captain because then there'd be no one to be judges and police captains. There were too many Nazis. But they really restructured the education system to purge Nazism from the culture as much as possible, to teach the history of what happened, to teach that it was wrong, and so on. Uh, Austria, by the way, I didn't have to go through that. It's one of the reasons why anti-Semitism and Nazi sympathies lasted so much longer there, because they didn't have to go through that. We have to undergo some kind of a denazification. Uh, and I don't know how. I, I, one idea I had once was that we should fund uh, every single school child to go visit the Museum of African American History and across the road, the Holocaust Museum. I think every single school child going to those two museums would be helpful. Um, especially the African-American History Museum, but both of them really. Something like that. That's the kind of funding that we need to save ourselves. So that's just in terms of saving our culture. But at the moment, we have to overwhelm the polls. I, mean, I don't know what else we can do, but to get people on the left to realize the threat, uh, that's the strategy. I'm, I'm not sure, Democrats don't have a great track record of being good politicians. Uh, so I, I hope they manage it. I don't know what else we can do. We should keep talking, we should keep podcasting, we should keep marching, we should keep writing, we should keep speaking, speaking and speaking and speaking and speaking um, to get a sense of the danger. Uh, and then we'll have to see if, if we're successful or not because uh, the consequences of failure are, are scary to, to think about. They really are. They truly are. And I think that, that every day that he spews these lies, the racism and threats, we move further down the road 
the road of fascism mm -hmm. and every day they remain in power and they're not stopped, it becomes further entrenched and further normalized. That's and that right. every day that even us with, with Hearts for Humanity, every day we allow it, every day that we're not speaking out against it, every day that we're not in the streets, every day that we're not writing about it and marshalling people to act, we're complicit. That's right. And, I, I agree. You know, and I think that if we are in the streets now, in the next, what is it at this point, six, six weeks, is it? Um, something like that, yeah. Something like that. You know, it can change the equation constraining this regime's ability to so easily steal. You know, they're already stealing the election, but to outright we, we know from polls, we know uh, that, the, and Trump knows it too, that in a, in a fair election, uh, he knows he would lose in a landslide. There's just no question about it. It's right. overwhelming. And sure, there are things that we can't judge for, people who are too embarrassed to support Trump and so they're lying. But for the most part, we know. And in not just overall in the nation, but in the battleground states that really flipped the election because of the Electoral College. Uh, we know that, and he knows it. There's no question. That's why he's encouraging people to vote twice, literally, which is... An insanity. I mean, who would have thought the president of the United States encouraging and the, the attorney general, the, the top law enforcement official in the country, literally saying, what the, I'm not sure if that's illegal to vote twice or not. You have to look, look into that. I mean, we are in a bizarro world. And that's why I say when, the, when, the, when I say the Justice Department's already lost, that's what I mean. It's already lost. That's gone. That's been corrupted now. The presidency is gone. The Senate is a rubber stamp. The Supreme Court is not entirely, but largely a rubber stamp. Uh, it will become a complete rubber stamp. You don't need to have an enabling act. For those of you who don't remember this, your listeners, that was when uh, the Nazis burned down the parliament building. They blamed it on communists. And they said, you have to give Hitler temporary dictatorial powers. And every party in, in, in the parliament, except for the socialists, uh, vote, and the communists, of course, voted uh, voted for it. They gave it, the socialists tried to resist, but they were not quite numerous enough. They weren't really socialists, they were social democrats, but whatever. Um, and Hitler was given dictatorial powers. You don't need an enabling act if the Senate and the courts are already in your hands and you have a rubber stamp. You don't need an enabling act. You just do whatever you want and no one's going to stop you. We, I think what we have to do is consider the, the cultural and the institutional as two different fronts of what is happening here. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to fight at both levels. I, we, have to, we have to fight in both levels is right. And I think we, we can't stop until we win on both fronts. Both That's right. And, the, and the cultural front will take a long time. Long time, yeah. Uh, you know, until they are driven from power. And again, I'm advocating nonviolence and-, and we, uh, Absolutely nonviolence. But I think we also are going to need to rid that program from society. And that isn't going to, they're not just going to go away without a political struggle. And by they, I mean his thugs that are in the street that have been unleashed. And the ones that don't seem as thuggish, but, <laughs> but are, are followers. There are, of, more, there are more Kyle Rittenhouses out there. Uh, yeah. Sad to say it, but there's gonna be more murders. Um, I, I, I hate to predict that, but it's self-evident that inevitably it's gonna happen. They're being encouraged and they're being told they're gonna be protected. So I, I, that's again, part of the rise of fascism is, is the rise of, of militias that act uh, with uh, a sense of freedom that they won't be prosecuted in any way or harmed in any way what they did. Both of those things are true. And I, and I recognize, you know, people have to live their lives. I recognize not everybody's in a position just to march 24 hours a day. 
But I think there's things we all can do. Certainly just talking with our friends and, and not just saying, well, I don't want to be political. Most people are not political. And I, and I get that. You know, you and I are very politicized and most people are not. But this is not a time to be non-political because non-political is political. Saying to stay out of it yeah. is what Ellie Wiesel taught us, is what Martin Luther King Jr. taught us, right? To be non-political is to say, whoever is in power now, I support them. Uh, and how dangerous is that? Yeah. There is There is no neutral I'll be blunt, we, we all, this is a moment where we do in, in some ways need to stop everything. And yeah. we have to change our lives in accordance to, to what is happening in the world to stop, you know, to stop a threat that imperils humanity. You know, we're, not only does he, he being Trump endanger the lives of people in this country, he endangers the lives of people all over the world, we're talking about a demented bully with his finger on the nuclear trigger. I want to um, just express my deep appreciation for you taking the time um, of course, of course. with us. And, um, uh, and thank you for everything you do, uh, organizationally and otherwise, for the podcast, for the rallies, and for everything else. And I do want to let people know that um, in the show notes, you can find um, Joshua's Slate article, and in it he talks about um, the militias and the lives that have been lost. And I encourage people to come out Wednesday, September sixteenth, for nationwide gatherings to indict Trump for inciting and defending murders by fascist mobs to commemorate the fallen and to drive out the Trump regime. That was Josh Shane's associate professor of Jewish studies and director of the Center of Israel Studies at the College of Charleston. Check out his article from Slate.com, linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Inside Without Now. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, be sure you're looped into what's happening and how you can get involved by going to refusefascism.org. You can give now to help us reach more people by clicking the donate button or Venmo, refuse-fascism, or cash app refuse fascism. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. Trump Pence, out now. See you in the streets.